morning, everyone. If I haven't met you, my name is Hank. I'm one of the assistant ministers in this parish, and my primary responsibility is with the 4 p.m. congregation that meets at Strathfield. But my family and I come here in the morning and have the joy of fellowshipping with you. Now, look at Zechariah chapter 2 that was read out for us earlier by Sumadu. And I might begin uh, by asking a question myself as well. Uh, do you ever wake up in the morning and found yourself saying, I'm not sure whether I can do this. I don't know whether I can keep going as a Christian. Uh, one of the greatest temptations in Christian life and ministry, I reckon, is discouragement in our part of the world anyways. Uh, no doubt other temptations abound, uh, but for many genuine believers, in my experience and pastoral conversation with many of the people, it's not really the outright immorality that that is the temptation, but that subtle um, energy-draining, joy-zapping discouragement. Uh, you pour your heart out onto someone to befriend them and love them, and all that's returned is callous indifference. Uh, or your desire to serve uh, is always taken or seem to be received in the wrong way, and you find yourself in conflict or in that awkward interpersonal relationship with someone who's supposed to be your brother and sister in Christ? That's very discouraging, isn't it? Uh, or the ministry just never seems to bear fruit. Uh, I think this is a particular uh, sort of uh, source of discouragement for people like myself or in ministry leadership position. I was catching up with one of my uh, friends the other day, and he's made many sacrifices to serve the Lord. He's a very capable man and a godly person at that. Um, but for whatever reason, the uh, only thing that's been met for him so far in his ministry is setback, failures, and discouragement. Uh, it broke my heart the other day, listening to him drowned in the depth of discouragement. He told me, um, everything that's happened in my life tells me God doesn't want me in his kingdom work. I'm not sure whether I can or whether I should keep going. Now, Christian life and ministry on this side of glory is hard. Uh, no doubt there are victories and encouragements, uh, but it is also always accompanied by setbacks and discouragement. Uh, in the New Testament letter uh, called 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul shares uh, his own experience of discouragement in Christian life and ministry in this way. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. We are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of living itself. End quote. Uh, even for the great apostle, discouragement and the temptation of throwing in the towel was real. Uh, then how shall we persevere in discouraging times? You might be going through one of those at the moment. Or uh, Where do we draw strength? Now stay with the Apostle Paul for a moment, and this is what he shares in the same letter a couple of chapters later. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Yet we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look uh, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen at the moment, the heavenly reality. For the things that are seen are transient, it's passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul draws strength, uh, Paul draws encouragement, that's literally what strength is, isn't it? In discouraging times, by lifting his eyes to things that are unseen. In other words, by seeing reality with God's perspective, or we could say God's vision, uh, by, by uh, aligning his eyesight to God's vision. Because in discouraging times, our uh, vision gets cloudy, doesn't it? You lose strength and you can't think right. So in such times, we need God's unveiling, his revelation to see the yet present hidden reality, nevertheless, ultimate, true, and eternal light of his glory. And that's what God did for the people, uh, his people, through the prophet Zechariah in our passage today, as his night visions continue. And perhaps uh, that's what uh, we need to see today, align our vision with God's vision. Now, the people of God during, who lived during the time of Zechariah uh, went through really difficult times and discouraging times. Um, 520 to 500 BC onwards, that's the sort of time frame that we are talking about. They were depressing times. Yes, uh, they had finally came back home from exile in Babylon, which has now been taken by Persian Empire. Uh, but the land that they came back, well, the home is not the home they remembered. It's been left desolate and deserted for many, many years. Only the poor of the people are left there. And the redevelopment plan wasn't going very smoothly. They were met by opposition at every direction. And what they accomplished so far in the last 40 years onwards, uh, uh, 20, 30 years uh, somewhat since coming back, very insignificant. So Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 tells us that, yes, they've come back. And the first thing, first uh, big development plan they did was to rebuild God's temple. And so they were able to put the foundation of God's, God's temple again. And some of the older folks, uh, the equivalent of George and, uh, uh, and so on, I, I won't name anyone else than George in case you get offended. Uh, remember the former glory, the former temple, and they actually wept bitterly. Now, it, was, it was meant to be a day of celebration, but they wept instead. This is all we've got. This is all our future. This is as good as it's going to get. We're never going back there, are we? They knew it. People of God were a small, insignificant minority pressed from every direction. Church growth was unthinkable, let alone church survival. Into this situation, God lifts the prophet's eyes and shows his vision for his city and his people. Look with me from verse 1 again. And I lifted my eyes, that's Zechariah and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Uh, the third vision picks up on a statement made in the first vision about God's plan to rebuild the city back in chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. Uh, the measuring line in the Old Testament is associated with building structures. You measure things, and in the Old Testament, especially the sacred buildings, such as the temple or tabernacle back in the Exodus times, 
rebuilding of the wall in Nehemiah's time, those are things that get measured, that they're important and they are sacred. So beginning the vision with a measuring line would naturally raise the expectation for Jerusalem's redevelopment, reconstruction. Apparently the man is already on the move because Zechariah asks him, where are you going? And in verse 2, he replies, to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. Uh, the sense of the man's reply is actually quite ambiguous. Uh, the man could either be saying, I'm going to measure what its width and length currently sits, or he's saying, I'm going to measure what it ought to be. So, so is, he, is he talking about its measurement now, or is he talking about its measurement for the future? Uh, we're not quite told yet. But what becomes clear in the following verse is that this man's vision for Jerusalem reconstruction was way too small compared to God's vision and template for it. Look at verse 3. Behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run! It's very urgent, isn't it? Run! Uh, before uh, the engineers start ordering wrong materials. Uh, before Sydney train orders trains that doesn't fit in our uh, train rail track. You, you know, you think I'm joking, but it has happened before. I've got friends who worked on that project and it cost billions of taxpayers money to kind of cut the rail track and so on. Ron, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. The angel tells the young man, the man holding the measuring line to stop is surveying the walls, surveying for the walls, because Jerusalem would be a city without walls. But now, at this point, if we were living at the time of Zechariah, you'd be quite surprised because not having walls, city without walls, was actually a disgrace for the city, as it was the case for Jerusalem at the time. If it's a city without walls, it means uh, you've been defeated. You got no walls. Why? <laughs> because you've been attacked and you've been, you, you've been left ruined and under destruction. But here, rather surprisingly, the angel seems quite excited about the prospect of a city without walls. Uh, why? Well, he says it's because the city is without walls for its overflowing population. It's almost like an imagery of Genesis 1 back here, as though this city will be so overflowing in animals and people. They are increasing, being fruitful and multiply, and that no city can contain it. It's like almost they're back in the garden with prosperity and wealth of God's gift. What a transformation. Because the people of God during Zechariah's time would have seen the naked and ruined Jerusalem without walls and probably only found discouragement. How can we have a city without walls? And imagine being in that ruined, desolate place. Like, where, where do you start? Is it ever going to be accomplished? Where do we draw the money? We are poor. Now, God speaks into this situation with a transformed vision. The city is without walls in this vision, but the reason for its wallless design is not ruin, but rather the growth and prosperity of the city, so immense that no walls could contain it. So what's happening in this vision 
is that uh, the vision is taking something that is normally associated with dishonor and defeat and has transformed it into honor and glory and victory. So usually without walls is bad, but here without walls is actually good. So that as people were looking at the, the, the city without walls, they would find encouragement. And that's how our God works, doesn't he? In the New Testament, again, the Apostle Paul teaches us uh, this reality about what God has done for each and every single one of us. If you have come to Jesus Christ, he says, consider your calling. Look back and consider your life and how you have found God, he says. And says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses those cities without walls and makes it beautiful. God chooses what is normally weak in the world and despised and glorifies it. That's, that's the amazing goodness and somewhat paradoxical wisdom of God. And that's what God has done for us individually as well as corporately. The church that looks so insignificant at present, gathering of weak and lowly people, by and large, God is using it as a signpost to his coming kingdom of heaven. Now come back to Zechariah. But as glorious as the city without walls is, it would have raised a question about the city's protection. Right? How do you keep a city without walls? Uh, safe. You can talk all, all, all about its prosperity and growth and overflowing population, but if you have done walls, well, what if someone like Babylon comes again and takes everything away? Because that's what happened in 586 BC. Well, the answer is stunning in its simplicity and power. God says in verse 5, I will be the wall. I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst. Uh, the great general Genghis Khan is said to have remarked once, uh, it is not the stoutness of the wall, but the spirit of its defenders that determines the strength of its city. And the same is true, I think, both physically and spiritually. Uh, walls never provide lasting protection. Uh, Jerusalem had a high and strong wall before. Jerusalem was really well known for its high altitude and, and, and the high and strong walls, the formidable walls it had against its enemies. But they were overtaken over time. Now possibly, even as Zechariah speaks, lying at his feet may have been the stones and rubbles of the old walls that no longer provided any protection. See, walls of money, power, and politics do not last. That's the consistent message of the Old Testament prophets if you read them. Now, Isaiah comes to that. Don't put your hope in Egypt. Egypt cannot pr protect you. Your hope is in God, Lord of hosts. You may have realized as we go through Zechariah, God's name is referred as Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, Lord Almighty, over and over again. Reminding God's people during that discouraging 
at times living in a naked ruin, destroy the city as a weak, insignificant people, remember your protection lies with God. At the end of the day, the only sure defender and protector of God's people is God himself, not anything else. If God is with you, you are safe even if you go through the valley of death, says the psalmist. And as the Israelites found out in their wilderness journey, remember the wilderness journey? Uh, how scary that would have been going through the wilderness as a landless group of people. But God protected them and guided them through pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day. But if God is not with you, without God, there is no wall high or strong enough to protect you from the power of sin and coming death. Death is the ultimate exile, isn't it? That's what exile represents. Now, where do you find security? I want to ask you this morning. Uh, do you feel secure, uh, perhaps because you make a lot of money? You have enough to build some high-walled, secure house set for your uh, retirement. On, on the flip side, do you feel insecure because you don't have enough to build something? Or do you find security in trusting your Heavenly Father that He will provide what you need to live a godly life waiting for your eternal home here? Now, the same can be asked of us corporately as a church. Where do we find confidence and security for our church and our ministry? Now, far too often, we find confidence and safety about a particular church or ministry by looking at the numbers on the pews and numbers in the bank account balance, don't we? That's the measuring line we use. How's your church going? Well, well, how can I tell? We look at how many people come and how much they give. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not throwing cheap shots at you know, church matrix. I think they have place for it. Or even producing finance report that our treasurer uh, produces for us each month. Uh, that, that, that has its place and keeps us uh, to be accountable to one another and so on and know the wider need of the church. However, I, I want to say far too often they play too big a role in both encouraging us as well as discouraging us. I'm told that the ABC of the um, church matrix is attendance, buildings, and cash. And if those are strong, you feel very encouraged. If those are weak, you feel very discouraged. I, I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm not saying they are unimportant. They have its place, but I think in my experience, personal experience, as well as in my chats with friends who are in ministry, they play far too big a role in both encouraging us as well as discouraging us. Our ultimate source of confidence and courage must come from God's promise to be with us. His promise to be with us to do his work through feeble people like you and I, as jars of clay, point people to what is surpassing in glory. Uh, uh, his promise to be with us that when we ask, 
He hears us and He provides things that we need to live a godly life. Uh, as we go and make disciples of all nations, that He promises to be with us, that He will raise dead people into new life and bring them, transferring them from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. As we share His word, share His good news with loving kindness. I come back to Zechariah, the glorious vision of Jerusalem's restoration is followed by urgent invitation now to God's city in verse 6. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Uh, the urgent call to flee and escape to Zion is addressed to those Israelites in living in Babylon uh, who had comfortably settled down in exile. You know, exile, it went for 70 years. So some of them, they settled down and, and they did well for themselves. So they really didn't feel any impetus or motivation to come back to Jerusalem. It's like migrating from uh, Sydney all the way down to some far north, you know, rural New South Wales where there's nothing. Uh, but, and, but God says flee and escape because God will bring a reversal. God is about to judge Babylon and vindicate Jerusalem. The current state of affairs will not continue on forever. The worldly power will be brought down and God's people will be glorified. So verse 8 uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Now, if you haven't noticed during the Bible reading, verse 8 is actually very puzzling. It, it's a very difficult verse. Uh, firstly, who's speaking in verse 8, and who's sending who? Uh, what is this glory? And also, there's a bit of a manuscript discrepancy at the end of verse 8. Um, some ancient manuscript uh, writes it as apple of my eye, uh, so first person, whereas some manuscripts has apple of his eye, third person. So one of the commentators, commentators I read during the week reckons uh, Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8 is the most difficult verse in the entire whole book of Zechariah. So um, I just... Hang with me and work with me a little bit. I'm not trying to make things any more difficult than it is necessary, but we cannot just skip difficult parts of the Bible and, and only take some part of God's word as God's word. And if it's this difficult part that doesn't make much sense, we ignore. We can't do that, right? We have to, we have to look at everything. So just hang with me a, a, for a couple of minutes. Uh, I think there are two options to read this, uh, read and understand this verse as far as I can think about it. Um, first, First option is, if we take God to be the speaker in verse 8, then the gist of the verse is about how God's glory departed Jerusalem and went to nations. As prophet Ezekiel talked about in, in the other Old Testament book. But there in exile, God was not absent from his people. God was still with his people and God witnessed how the nations disgracefully treated his people. So, so God is then saying, uh, he who touches you, touches the apple of my eye. 
And in verse 9, God is declaring, Behold, I will now shake the nation. So that's one way to understand uh, verse 8 and verse 9. Or if we take Zechariah to be the speaker in verse 8, uh, then uh, the gist of the verse is um, the temporal preposition after should be read more metaphorically. So in pursuit of it, like going after God's glory, because for the honor of God's glory, God sent Zechariah to preach against the nations, saying God will judge the nations. Right? Get that two options. I hope I didn't confuse you too much. But while getting the exact phrase of the verse may be hard, well, the overall message is very clear, whichever way you take it. And I think both readings are very respectable. Um, I found myself thinking that the first option was right on Monday. And then Tuesday morning, I read it again, and I thought it was the second option. And um, this morning, I think the first option works well. Maybe in the afternoon I preach, I might have changed my view. But whichever way you take it, it means that God is with his people. God is not ignorant of their suffering and what they've gone through. God will now judge the nations who have harshly treated God's people and bring victory to God's people. That, that's the overall meaning, isn't it? That's very clear, and that's what is important. God will judge Babylon. There is therefore no lasting security or future in Babylon, but only in Jerusalem. Uh, the New Testament uses Babylon as a symbol of all world system that doesn't have God at the center. And the new Jerusalem as the symbol of God's coming new creation. So ultimate hope for God's people lies in New Jerusalem. Uh, just as what uh, was probably true for God's people in Zechariah's time, for all their eyes could see, Jerusalem was a loser, Babylon was a winner. But God brought about that change. And also, so God will do for us as we patiently wait for his new Jerusalem to come down from new heavens and new earth. Now, before we move on from these verses, it's worth pausing and reflect on the reason God gives for his judging Babylon here. That is, Babylon touched the apple of God's eye. And it's astonishing to think that God refers Israel as the apple of his eye, given all that Israel has done against God in that Old Testament book history. The people of God in the Old Testament, time and time again, rejected God, rebelled against God, went after other gods betrayed God. Some of the imageries that are used of Israel's action in the uh, Old Testament, shockingly, it's a, uh, a repeatedly adulterous wife who cheated against her husband on their wedding night. That's the kind of uh, way Israel have treated God over and over again in the Old Testament. Yet, all the while, God remembers them. He never forgot his unworthy bride, his prodigal son. He keeps his eyes upon his people and now promises to vindicate her against her enemies. Such is the depth of God's love and his commitment to his people, isn't it? And perhaps some of you have experienced that in your own life today. You've tried your best to run away from God. You've ignored God, rejected him in your life in all sorts of various ways. 
but God continues to come after you, pursue you, speak gracious and comforting words of his gospel as Zechariah heard in Zechariah chapter 1 verse 14 and brought you back to himself. Now in response, God calls his people to sing and rejoice in verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Now, always the greatest gift and blessing is God himself. Uh, three, three times in this passage, the Lord promises that he will come and dwell in the midst of his people. Verse 5, verse 10, and verse 11. For Zechariah's post-exilic community, his promise to dwell among them meant that he would change them from being forsaken and abandoned to forgiven and defended people. He would transform the city from, from ruin and destruction to glorious reconstruction, transform the nation's barrenness and defeat to prosperity and vindication. In other words, God's ultimate promise is that God will change their world by entering into their world. I'm not going to ask you to do anything for me. I'm not going to ask you to change these things on your own strength. Actually, I will do all these things by entering into your world. And with God's coming, what we witness is a transformation, not only of Israel, but all the nations and all cosmos. In verse 11, look at that. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day. You know that nations that persecuted the people of God? Now even those nations repent and come to God. And they shall be my people. I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will inherit Judaism's portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Now, when God comes to dwell in the midst of his people, God also transforms the nations so that they become my people. That is a covenant language of uh, referring to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, but now they are referred and they are widened in its scope. This promise of changing the world and bringing people from four corners of the earth to God himself begins to find fulfillment in the coming of Jesus Christ. Remember the story of the Magi in the Gospels? As Jesus comes and is born in Bethlehem, you start hearing about these Magi who live far away, traveling all the way across the desert to worship the king of Judah. And throughout the gospel, next time you read the gospel, have a look. You'll notice that throughout the gospel, you see people coming from all sorts of different places to Jesus. Jesus starts gathering people. Then upon dying for our sin and rising from the dead, he then sends his disciples to all the nations. And that is what he's doing at present. And on the day of his return, he will bring all things to himself. Now, God's vision of New Jerusalem is the restoration of all the earth. And so fittingly, our passage ends by addressing the whole earth to be still and watch what the Lord will do. Verse 13, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, as we wrap up, God's vision given to prophet Zechariah would have been very difficult to believe for the people who lived during that time. 
from their vantage point, all they could see was discouragement. And they had to walk, not by sight, but by faith. And the same is true for us today. The final fulfillment of God's promise still awaits us with the return of Jesus Christ and the new Jerusalem. And while we wait, there will be plenty of setbacks and discouragements uh, in our personal lives as well as our corporate life together at church. But God promises to be with us. He will prosper us. He will protect us and transform us in Christ who dwells with us by his spirit. So brothers and sisters, let us not lose our heart, but continue in the Lord with joy and patience as we looked not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And one day, we will see. He will dwell with us and we with him. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things would have passed away. Amen.